0: Thank you. Always try to remember to do that when Mark's doing his thing. So we are in Exodus chapter 7, beginning at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went in to Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. The Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods and Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said so the Lord said to Moses Pharaoh's heart is hard he refuses to let the people go go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him and the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, the Egyptians shall will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the water, the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the midst of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them. As the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink. Because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Thus far the word of our God. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we are assembled before you. Continue in our worship. We come now to this pinnacle when your scriptures are open and explained. And we pray, Lord, that you would open the word of God and apply it to our hearts, that these events that happen of old, that you inspired Moses by your spirit to write down your timeless, enduring word, that it would be effective in our midst even as the writer of Hebrews said that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing of bone and marrow, and the thoughts in the intents of our hearts. Lord, bless the preaching of the word, that it would accomplish good in your people, that sinners would be convicted, that the saints would be built up, and that above all, that Christ would have preeminence and that our God would be glorified. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I hope most of you will remember when we were in the book of John that John's gospel opens, that first chapter, the first 13 verses, uh, with what is typically called a prologue. Children, what that means is an introduction, that in those 13 verses, John particularly introduces someone, introduces the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He's introducing the one, the Son of God, who'd come into the world. Phil Graham Ryken, in his commentary on the book of Exodus, suggests that this episode here with the rods turning into serpents provides a prologue, an introduction to what follows in the next five chapters, the the chapters that contain the plagues. Children, I want to remind you that these, these things are critical. An introduction helps us to know where we're at, where we're going, what to be looking for. And even as you hear this passage about the serpents, it's pretty fascinating, actually, what's happening. Rod's turning to serpents and one swallowing up the others. Why don't you remember as this is setting up a picture of where the events are going over the next five chapters. So in this prologue, this introduction, there are several important things that are reported. The main characters of the drama are once again named Moses, Aaron, Pharaoh, and the magicians. And of course, in it all, through it all, above it all, is the Lord, the covenant faithful Lord God of his people Israel. He is the driving one. He is the one that is accomplishing his purpose. So then what we see is then there's a pattern or a flow of the plagues that follow. And this is the the pattern. Moses and Aaron obey God and the miracle is performed. Then fake miracles of Satan and his servants follow that to a point. We'll see that at a point they cease. But that's what happens for a while. And then we see God's superior power is on full display. And then we also see the rod of God in Aaron's hand. And then another sober note, the ever-increasing hardness of Pharaoh's heart. That refrain keeps occurring. We've seen it in the passage that we've just read. So what we have here is a contest between serpents, and the way that that turned out is a picture of how the whole contest or conflict will turn out. What became of the magician's rods that turned into serpents? They're swallowed up by Aaron's rod. I was in verse 12. This looks forward to Pharaoh's army being swallowed up by the Red Sea on down in chapter 15 verse 12. The same word swallowed. It's the same word in the Hebrew is used in both those occasions. And so here we have this prologue, this introduction, that is looking to the destruction, the final and complete destruction through the plagues, but ultimately even Pharaoh's army, what's left of it when it is swallowed up by the judgment of God through immersion into water. We can use three main headings this morning. We're going to look at this swallowed. Swallowed, God's power on display. Then, second, God's first plague on Egypt. And then, death and devastation follow sin. The wages of sin is death. So, we see the sin of Pharaoh, and what happens to him and his people? Death and devastation. And then, we'll have a concluding application. What we should see in this historical account are the Lord's strong hand to save his people. This is one of the themes. Uh, I forget who it was, but uh, someone that was reading and preparing for the book of Exodus last fall pointed out that the theme uh, is that God saved for his glory. God saved for his glory. And and we can say that about our own salvation, Uh, not uh, the salvation of being slaves in Egypt, as this is, but that picture points to the greater salvation of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, who has saved us through his son, his life, his life, His death, His resurrection, we are saved for God's glory. We see God's strong hand to save His people, God's faithfulness to keep His covenant promises, and that God did these mighty acts all for His glory alone. So the lesson then is God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is in our lives in your lives still strong to save, to keep His covenant promises to all who believe, and all that he is doing in our day is for his glory alone. As the Reformation cry was, solidea gloria. So we begin with swallowed, God's power on display. Look again at verse 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. It's interesting. I, I noted that here we have, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Verse 14, the Lord spoke to Moses. And then right on down through, we see apply the principle that God, or the the relationship that God declared to Moses. I will speak to you, and you shall be as God to Aaron. God reveals to Moses his world, and then Moses relays it to Aaron, who is his prophet. And so Moses is uh, an intermediary, a, a priest between God and man, particularly between him, God, and his brother Aaron. And so here we see God speaking to Moses. This is, again, the Lord, all caps, the covenant faithful Lord God. He's the one that's moving these events forward, and his chief instrument is Moses. That's who he's speaking to. Moses looms large throughout all these events, indeed, through the first five books of the Bible. We understand that Moses is the author of these things as the Holy Spirit moved him along. In some sense, Moses is larger than life. And yet later on, I believe in Deuteronomy, God will say of Moses, there was no more humble man on the face of the earth. So here God speaking to Moses. And yet Moses, by the grace of God, is kept humble. God addresses Moses. So what does he do? God commands Moses what he should tell Aaron. Notice God knows what Pharaoh is going to say. Verse 9, when Pharaoh speaks to you, and then what? saying, show a miracle for yourselves. So Moses and Aaron have come before Pharaoh. They're saying, the word of God, you shall let my people go. God speaking through them. And so God understands Pharaoh's heart, even as Psalm 139 tells us, David's celebrating the reality that God knows our thoughts before they are even one. He knows our days before they're even one. God, the Almighty God, overall he knows how this conversation when Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh is supposed to go. and so he says when Pharaoh speaks to you saying show a miracle for yourselves then you shall say to Aaron and here is God speaking through Aaron or through Moses to tell Aaron what he is to do. Pharaoh, makes this demand. It's not recorded, but indeed, they come before him. God said he'll say this, show a miracle for yourselves. What Pharaoh's doing in that, he's trying to put Moses on the spot. Remember, Moses grew up in the household of Pharaoh. This Pharaoh probably was like a brother as Moses had been adopted into Pharaoh's home and as a young child. And there's something of a contest even in that. And so Pharaoh has some assumptions about Moses. Perhaps he's gathered intelligence from his men and and realized that Moses has just been keeping sheep in Midian for the last 40 years. And so he's putting them on the spot. Show a miracle for yourselves. His goal would be then to discredit Moses. If he has no miracle, no no sign or wonder, then he can just dismiss him and send him on his way and, and get on with life, so to speak. But God is prepared his men, Moses and Aaron for this moment. Even in the wilderness when God appeared to Moses, he instructed him, take your rod that's in your hand, cast it down, it will become a serpent. And then to take it up by the tail and to return to being a rod. And then also you know, place your hand inside of your cloak, pull it out again, and it was leprous. Stick it in and again and pull it out and it was whole. Both of those were done before the children of Israel. Here we find that only the miracle the serpent was done. So God has prepared them. This has been rehearsed. Moses has relayed this to Aaron. Moses also has displayed this to Aaron and the leaders of Israel. Notice in the text what doesn't happen. He says, Take the rod and cast it before Pharaoh, so cast it and let it become a serpent. God doesn't say, Aaron, cast it before Pharaoh and make it a serpent. That's God's business. That's what God is going to do. And all along through there, Moses and Aaron going faithfully in obedience, God is the one that acts when his servants do as they were commanded. It was God's to perform the miracle of it becoming a serpent as well as when Aaron took it by the tail that it would turn back into a rod. And you see faith in these men that they did as they were instructed. We're not told that Aaron took the rod up again, but he certainly did because later God's going to tell him to stretch the rod out over Egypt, and the rod will be used over and over again, even as I pointed out uh, some sermons back. And so uh, these things are not recorded, but we see faith in Aaron that he can take hold of the tail of the serpent with a confidence that God will transform it back into a rod. And then verse 10 and following tells us, They did just as they were told. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did just—they did so, just as the Lord commanded. Wouldn't that be a marvelous thing to have that recorded about our lives? The Lord commands something. We we review the commandments, and we did them just as the Lord commanded. But we don't, do we? We need a redeemer. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason these men are able to do as the Lord commanded, the reason they're uh, faithful, that they're, they're equipped, is God has equipped them because of the completed work of Christ that will be done a millennium and some down the road. But because even now he has given them his Holy Spirit. So... They go in and they did just as it commanded. I think this is pretty amazing, you know, that he cast down the serpent and there it is, slithering around on the floor in, in the presence of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh plans for some one upmanship. It's like, Oh yeah, you can do that? And he summons his as this text tells us, his his sorcerers, his wise men, his sorcerers, his magicians, and they did just so. He says, I can do that. My men can do that. Now No doubt these wise men, sorcerers, and magicians were pleased with themselves. I want us to step back. What happened in the last book? Remember, we were in Genesis, and a Hebrew slave, a son of Jacob, Joseph, ends up brought into Egypt in chains. He's in Potiphar's house, falsely accused, ends up in prison, and there he interprets the dreams of the... The uh, cupbearer and and the baker of Pharaoh, Uh, those dreams are pulled true, and then Joseph's forgotten until Pharaoh has dreams. And then the wise men, the sorcerers and the magicians, are unable to explain them. This is supposed to be their art. This This is their guild. This is their craft. This is what they're about, and they can't do it. And a Hebrew named Joseph, who was just brought from a prison, who had formerly been a slave, Interprets Pharaoh's dreams. You can be certain that the guild of wise men, magicians, and sorcerers never forgot that story. so imagine there's a little pride in them that they come in and they're able to do the same thing. That They're happy to do a little one-upmanship with Moses, another Hebrew who has come from being a slave, pulled out of the river, and of all things adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. You can just imagine there's a lot of consultation. These are men. These are sinful men. But that contest is taking place. So you can imagine them congratulating themselves as they pass down their rods. Something happened unexpectedly at that point. Children, you've no doubt heard this story. You remember what happened when the wise men, they cast down their rods? I imagine there's, there's at least a dozen there's quite a few of these men, and so suddenly the, it's like that Indiana Jones scene when there's snakes slithering all about, and, and then something remarkable happens. Aaron's rod, which has become a serpent, starts eating snake after snake after snake. He, he swallows them up. Those wise men, magicians and sorcerers were not prepared for that to happen, nor is Pharaoh. He's showing off. He thinks he can take on Moses but this is the first time Moses has had some picture of what the God of the Hebrews is like. His wise men have been bested by Moses and Aaron. He denies that God is, and yet certainly someone greater than Moses and Aaron are there, unless he fully believes in magic arts and so forth. But nonetheless, even if that's the case, his wise men have been shown up. They're serpents and their rods. They're going to walk out of there. No rods in hand. And you know what? I'm convinced it's not recorded. When Aaron took hold of his serpent, which returned to be a rod, it's no bigger than it was before. It's not like it grew and grew and grew, and he's walking out carrying a telephone pole. It's a rod. It's the rod of Aaron. God has accomplished a great thing. Now, you might be asking a question. I know I did. How did Pharaoh's wise men, sorcerers, and magicians Turn their rods into serpents. Well, there's three possibilities, and uh, I'm inclined to think that the third one might be the one, but uh, whatever the case is, God may by his direct power have enabled it to be so. And if that was the case, the magicians would have been surprised because they would have never seen this happen before. But regardless, God is sovereign over this, and those Whatever took place was within God's sovereign plan. He's governed it, all his creatures, all their actions. Secondly, we say God allows Satan's dark arts to be used by these sorcerers, magicians, that indeed they had some power from Satan under God's authority, under God's dominion, because Satan is God's Satan. Satan is not a loose cannon. He is governed by the Almighty. Go read the book of Job, particularly the opening chapters. So that's a possibility. But it may also be by sleight of hand, what we call magic. I think most of us, even you children, you've seen magicians. Maybe some of you even played around with magic tricks, and you read that book and you realize, oh, I know how they do this now. So when you see a magician, you're watching for that sleight of hand. And that's a very real possibility of how these men, that they actually smuggled serpents into the room. They hid them until that moment, and then with their Secret arts that uh, the poof of the smoke or whatever, then they cast down rods, but their snakes are then produced, sort of like the magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat that's supposedly empty, or you know, putting a scarf over his hand, pulling it away, there's a dove. Sleight of hand, maybe exactly what they were doing, but for whatever reason, God decreed their delusion for His holy ends. It's highly likely that the two leaders, two of the leaders of this troop of wise men, sorcerers, and magicians are named by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.8 where he names a certain Janus in Jambres who resisted Moses. Perhaps you've wondered about that. Now, I want to make a, a, a very interesting point by quoting Matthew Henry. He comments here as what's happening in this context Matthew Henry says, God suffers the lying spirit to do strange things. Remember, there's a time where a lying spirit goes from the presence of God to be in the mouth of the false prophets. That's what he's referring to, but he's applying it to this situation. God suffers the lying spirit to do strange things that the faith of some may be tried and manifested, strengthened. And the infidelity of others may be confirmed. Pharaoh is magicians and that he who is filthy may be filthy still. It certainly applies to Pharaoh here. He's hardened in his heart. This episode takes place, and he just remains as he is. His infidelity, he's sealed in his infidelity. He's a cynic and a scoffer and a mocker of God, And so whatever a great display of God's power he's just seen, he just remains as he is. God gave thee. Victory to Moses in this contest. It was Aaron's rod that swallowed up Pharaoh's men's, or we just say Pharaoh's serpents. It was Moses and Aaron who defeated the servants of of the serpent. Remember the conflict that is unfolding in the Old Testament is between the seed of the woman, who is Christ, and the seed of the serpent. That conflict took place in Pharaoh's throne room, literally with serpents. And yet God has triumphed. And this should have been enough to move Pharaoh to repentance, to yield to the Lord God's command to let his people go. But he would not. So here's this powerful picture of the contest between the covenant faithful Lord and this king who serves at the Lord's command. Uh, the very beat of Pharaoh's heart is because God commands it. And there's this conflict. But this Engaging a counter is a picture of how it's all going to turn out, how it's going to end. Pharaoh defeated. His wealth, his power, his status, his fame, his prestige will all be swallowed up as God's mighty hand comes upon him. And here it has begun. And in this moment, Pharaoh has an opportunity to repent, he has an opportunity to humble himself in the sight of the Lord that he might be lifted up. However, verse 13 tells us, Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. This is what God told Moses when he called him in the wilderness of Midian, when he appeared to him at the the burning bush, the bush that would not burn, and that he was going to send him down to Pharaoh to bring his people out. But he said, Pharaoh's not going to heed you. And my mighty power will be displayed. And here we see for Moses' encouragement, things are unfolding as God said they would. Before we go on, let us consider the grave danger of a hard heart. Children, you don't have to be an adult to have a hard heart. One of the remarkable things about children is their hearts are often tender. Jesus comments on that. He'll accept you be like a little child and just come with simple Faith. Just with simple faith, call upon the name of the Lord. It doesn't take an intellectual degree and a a giant brain and all that just to be like a child. But, you know, a child can have a hard heart. You children hear the gospel. You hear the word of God. You, You hear Christ through the preaching of his word calling sinners like yourself to himself. And how much more so God has made promises to you, children. You have the sign and the seal of the covenant set upon you, and God has promised to be your God. And he calls you to come to him. Do not resist the work of the Spirit of God. Do not push back. If the Lord is calling you, as he's promised, to be your God, yield to him. Yield to the working of the Spirit. Pharaoh is a picture of a sinner. He's a picture of all of us. He's dead in his trespasses. His heart is a heart of stone, as the prophet Ezekiel refers to him. He has no faith in the covenant of faith of the Lord. He has no spiritual life. He's a rebel against God Almighty. And Pharaoh has just had his encounter with God through God's prophet, Moses. Moses was a preacher of righteousness who delivered God's message that he should yield himself, that his Pharaoh should yield himself and humble himself in the sight of the Lord. But Pharaoh refused. In every event that followed, then, every rejection of this message, this refusal to obey God, results in Pharaoh's heart being harder and harder. We heard in the homily a little bit ago from 1 Corinthians, as the elder reminded us of the conscience that seared as with a hot iron, a searing hot iron, It kills, it destroys, it burns. We want our conscience to be tender to the Lord, not hard. So you've heard this message many, many times. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You have experienced the powerful moving of the Holy Spirit on you, and yet some of you have refused to humble yourself under the hand of God and cry out to God and have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh, God, rescue and deliver me, my friend. If that's the case, you're playing with eternity because you will live forever either under God's wrath or his blessing. Do not harden yourself before the Lord. Christ came into the world to save sinners. God sent his only begotten son into the world because God loved the world. God loved sinners. And he sent his son to save all those whom he gave to his son. And the work that Christ accomplished in his life of obedience, his death on the cross, his resurrection, is for those who believe. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, you have faith in Christ according to the promise of God, his gospel, once for all delivered. All the blessings, all the benefits of Christ come to you. You're made right, legally, just in the sight of a holy God. God begins a work in you that you are growing in holiness. We call that sanctification. God declares you to be his child. You are adopted into the family of God. And you are assured of life now on this earth already. And then a life in eternity in the presence of God. This is all accomplished by union with Christ. And if you are such a one, if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, these benefits are yours These blessings are yours, that we should live in them and walk them out to the glory of God. Will we move along then to God's first plague in Egypt? What follows then is a pattern and this first plague will follow in each of the following plagues. Moses and Aaron obey God, the miracles perform. The fake miracles of Satan are then following as his servants perform them. These same wise men, sorcerers, magicians. And God's superior power is displayed. And the rod of God in Aaron's hand becomes a picture of power by which God accomplishes his will. And then the ever-increasing hardness of Pharaoh's heart. That's a sober, like a, a period at the end of each one. And Pharaoh hardened his heart before the Lord. With well, Some background here. This worship was this river that Pharaoh was going to go out before. We're told here that he you know, meet him when he goes out in the morning uh, to the water. This, the, the Nile River. This Nile is a mighty river. Mighty river. Some of you might be familiar with the Mississippi. Maybe you've been uh, to the Mississippi, and you can think of it. I've seen the Amazon. From what I understand now, they're saying the Amazon River is the longest river in the world. They used to say it was the Nile. Further research, no doubt, with satellites and stuff, they can determine it. But the river, uh, Nile River, is the longest river in on the African continent, second longest in the world. It begins flowing from a lake deep in the southern part or central part of Africa, Lake Victoria, and the tributaries that feed water into that lake, and then it flows north, it flows from south to north through several countries, and then eventually it empties out into the Mediterranean Sea some 4,100 miles later. The Nile flows through the entire length of Egypt. And from the time following the flood all the way to the time of the Exodus, this, and even now, this great river was essential to life in Egypt. It was vital. It was vital for transportation. It was vital for water. It was vital for food sources. It it watered the the regions through the flooding alongside of it so they could grow the crops the river supplied. You could say that the Nile was like the lifeblood of the nation. It was so vital. And then what happened? With sinners' hearts, they worshipped the river. The river became like a god to them. They saw it as the creator and the sustainer of their life. So that's a little context about the river. But isn't it true, water? How many of you can survive, we'll say, four days without water? You'll be in pretty rough shape without anything to drink for four days. You can go without food for a while, but water is essential to life. And This, this is near the equator, Egypt is. It's a hot climate, and water was critical. So God has a plan, and he tells this plan to Moses in verse 14. God keeps Moses right up to date about Pharaoh's spiritual condition. What does he tell him? Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Moses doesn't need to wonder whether anything has been accomplished. God tells him. And then the Lord tells Moses what to do and say in verses 15 through 18. Moses and his prophet Aaron are to meet Pharaoh as he goes out to the river in the morning. He's supposed to tell Pharaoh what's about to happen and what the results will be. That's it's recorded there. And after Moses finished informing Pharaoh, he was to tell Aaron then to stretch out his rod over the waters of Egypt, and God, again, would perform the miracle. The power of God would take the waters of Egypt and turn them into blood. And so we are told, verse 20, Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So they went out, they met Pharaoh, they gave him the command again from God, let my people go. This is verse 16, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. God's engaging with Pharaoh's heart through his prophet. This is Moses speaking to Aaron. Aaron's talking to Pharaoh. He said, but you wouldn't hear. Thus says the Lord. Okay, because of that. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters that are in the land with a rod in my hand, this is Aaron speaking, and they shall turn to blood. This is what God told Aaron to say through Moses. And then it goes on to say, all the water, even the water in buckets, would become blood. And so verse 20, they obeyed. Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So, he, Aaron, lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river and the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood and dot, dot, dot. All the streams, ponds, pools, lakes, you know, vessels, everything throughout the whole of the land of Egypt. Now remember, who's hearing about this? Pharaoh at the riverside. And the people of Pharaoh, his subjects scattered throughout the land, all of a sudden, their water's all blood. Can you imagine their consternation, their confusion, their alarm everywhere they turn? And how much more so as they look for water? From north to south and east to west, all water was blood. Can you imagine if that happened today? No life-giving water to be found in the whole of the land. This essential substance, water, it's, it's what we're largely made of, water suddenly there is no water to be had. And then what were the results? The third point, death and devastation follow sin. Whose sin? Pharaoh's sin. Who's affected? Not only Pharaoh, immediately he sees it, but all of his people, all of his subjects. And and you can imagine an outcry from the people. We're not told of that yet. But in some of the future plagues, the people will start saying, Pharaoh, come on. Haven't we had enough? Look at the nation, We're devastated. Give it up! You can imagine there was something of an outcry at this point. The people didn't even understand what had happened. They probably don't even know about the conflict that's happening in the capital. Well all of a sudden, all their water is blood. The Lord used something so common, so common as water to do this plague. Later, he will see he used something so common as dust and ash the furnace. You think about it, God, even today, down through many millennium, has so kindly supplied water to his creatures. The general benevolence of the living God, causing the rain to fall on the just as well as the unjust, giving the increase from the earth so that the wicked as well as the righteous eat. But in this case, all the water in Egypt was turned to blood. And because we'll compare later on, we're going to hear that some of the future plagues, Egypt is exempt, I mean Israel is exempted, because this is all of Egypt, and Israel is in Egypt. This affected them too. To what ends? That they too should learn to fear the Lord their God, and not harden their hearts as Pharaoh. And yet down the road, you hear that, do not harden your hearts. A command going out to Israel, as you did in the rebellion In Egypt, but especially in the wilderness, Paul says these things, too, were written for our instruction. Water is cheap and readily available, except in times of judgment. Even as we are seeing in our own land, if you're paying attention, some of the Western nations... You know, water that supplies those great population centers in California. There's there's legal values. There's suits filed over water because there's a scarcity of water. A drought, unprecedented drought. And then if you're paying attention last winter, unprecedented snowfall, cataclysmic water, rain and flooding. My friends, this is judgment from the Almighty. This is what God does to nations. And the righteous take it to heart. Let us not be like Pharaoh. God's judging our nation. It's evidence in a number of Let us seek the Lord. Let us repent and turn from our sin. And so here they are, no water, only blood to drink. Now, in the future plagues, we're told how they were resolved. Pharaoh entreated Moses, and he went out and prayed to the Lord, and whatever the infestation was is removed. Sometimes immediately, sometimes overnight, with the frogs as we've we'll seen, that infestation was removed. They just all died. That in itself was a plague—dead frogs everywhere. But this plague, we're not told how it's resolved. We're just told at the end of it, seven days passed after the Lord struck the river, and it seems to be a marker till the time of the next plague. But what follows? Death. We're told in verse 20, the second half. So he lifted the rod and struck the waters of the river, and in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters returned in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river, so there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Destruction and death. My friends, this is a terrible plague. Use your imaginations and try to imagine that if this land was struck, every body of water was blood. This had an impact not only on man but all the animals in Egypt in the land. The very sight of this very real blood would have greatly alarmed all who saw it. The consequences were far-reaching. The downfall of Egypt has begun. But this first plague, the downfall of Egypt has begun. Death and destruction, the fish and all that lived in the rivers, the people depended on these fish. It was a source of food. It was a source of commerce. And they're all dead. Major economic loss, a major food source loss. What follows is hard to imagine, the stents of rotting blood and fish flesh. Some years ago, in the early 80s, my wife and I were biking a lot of New, upper New England, and we went on up to New Brunswick with friends, and we're biking Grand Manan Island. It was, like, I think, an August day. It was hot. We were enjoying ourselves, and we, we came around the north side and then the west side of the island, and we start riding uh, east into the breeze. Wow, we were overwhelmed, overwhelmed with a stench. When it hit us, we were like... What is that? It was ghastly. It was like something out of a, a dark movie, although you don't smell things, but it was just awful. I, I never smelled anything like it before or since. And we're riding on and on, and we're just trying to keep from becoming sick. It was that bad. And eventually we come to a, a fish processing house right on the edge of the water. And just above the water line was a pile of fish offal. Bodies that have been filleted, all the innards, just in a heap in that August sun, and that's what we smell. It was a pile of lobster bait. Sorry if that ruins your appetite for lobster, but it was just so you know when I think about Egypt and the whole land, I mean at least all along the river, this stench of rotting fish and rotting blood, there's no escaping it. This is a terrible plague cataclysmic, earth-shattering, alarming. Why? Because Pharaoh, one man, hardened his heart. Death and destruction came upon them. Remember, Egypt is a hot land near the equator. All those pleasant palaces, those large and lovely houses of the rich and the wealthy along the river's edge were suddenly not places that were pleasant to be. You can imagine those people fled. But where did they go? The stench is everywhere. This mighty river that held, the, uh, was held with reverence and even worship, it was uh, one of their gods connected to it, it's, and now it's suddenly the picture of death. My friends, if you are a sinner who follows your own idols, this is a picture of what awaits you, death and destruction. Life is found in Christ alone. The Lord God had brought down one of the great idols of Egypt. God had overthrown the idols of men. And in that, there's a mercy. When God strips away our idols, when he shows us the insufficiency and the inadequacy of our idols, God is showing a mercy. And then what we see is the the arrogance of Pharaoh's heart, this sinful arrogance, verse 22. Then the magicians of Egypt, no doubt they were summoned, and with their secret arts, their enchantments, they did so. Like really? You don't have enough blood. There's not enough death instruction. I don't know what water they they did their secret arts with, but they did something. It's recorded here. And you know, here's Pharaoh. It's like oh, my men can do the same thing. I don't care about this Lord God of Israel. And he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned. He went to his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. This reminds us that the Holy Spirit alone can change a sinner's heart. can't do it for ourselves. Well, the good news is that God is able to reach even a sinner like this. We can dig deep holes for ourselves in our sin. Some of you have testimonies of that. God's grace is greater than all our sin. There's no hole so deep but that God can reach into it and rescue us. I'm persuaded that if God gave Pharaoh a heart to repent, God would have been able to save him. God's grace is amazing. You know, I wonder at this point. He summons his enchanters, his magicians, and all that. You know, if Pharaoh really wanted to show his superiority, he should have told them turn all that blood back into water. That would have been something. But he couldn't, because God is judging them, and he's just a puny man, as we all are. And so this brought devastation for all the people. Verse twenty-four: So all the Egyptians, the whole, throughout the whole of the land. All the Egyptians, they dug all around the river for water, hoping that if they dug far enough away from it, that there might still be the water in the ground, as the case would be. Perhaps even in the land, they're digging wells, because you know you can go out there, and you dig deep enough, you will find water in the ground. These people are desperate. Did they find water? We don't know. God in his general benevolence may have been kind to the people of Egypt, who this has come upon them through no fault of their own, although they are a nation of idolaters. But they're desperate. They need water. And they can't find any. Verse 24. They could not drink the water of the river. Devastation. God triumphs. So the river that Pharaoh had, the very river that Pharaoh had commanded the Hebrew baby boys to be cast into. Remember that? Every male child comes forth from Hebrew throw them into the river. A place of death as they cast the little ones in there has now become the source of death for the Egyptians. They had sowed death and like a whirlwind they reaped death as a nation. By striking the Nile at the first It revealed just how powerful the God of the Hebrews was. I can imagine the conversation around the dinner table changed because God had struck what they depended upon the most. This plague points to the final plague when the blood of the firstborn of all the houses of Egypt will be spilled as the death angel goes throughout the land but those of the Hebrews where the blood of the lamb is on the doorpost and on the lentil are spared. The life is in the blood. This blood was death because of the destruction from the Almighty. But God preserves life through the life, the blood life of the lamb pointing, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll deal with that in chapter 12 with the Passover. My friends, if you would escape Young or old, adult or child, if you would escape the wrath of God that is surely coming, you need to be under the blood of Christ. You need to be united to Christ. His shed blood needs to be effective for washing away your sins. I said we can close with an application. Matthew Henry observes that this very first plague on Egypt was turning water into blood. Remember what the very first miracle of Jesus was? He turned water into wine the blood of the grape you remember that sermon from John 2 where the water was in those ceremonial uh, jars representing the law and that the wine was a picture of the new covenant in Christ God in in Christ dispensing grace to sinners there in Israel and throughout the land What we see here is a picture of the law given by God through Moses a dispensation of death and terror is certainly what Egypt knew And yet Jesus comes with a dispensation of grace, and he gives wine that makes man's heart glad. The plague of the blood forewarned of a greater judgment to come. The judgment in the last day. Pharaoh did not heed that warning. He hardened himself. Matthew Henry comments, so quoting here, God warns before he wounds. God warns before he wounds. We're warned weekly through the hearing of the law and the preaching of the gospel. We are warned to flee to Christ. Even so, God is warning sinners today. There is a day of wrath and ruin coming. But not this day. This is the day of salvation. God is still offering salvation to sinners. You look at the rebellion in our land. You look at the hardness of hearts, the shaking of fist of man against God, the collective facing. We will determine what genders are, not the Almighty. There's more, no more blatant casting off of the yoke of God than in this thing. And Yet God is still offering salvation. God is still merciful, calling sinners to himself. is the reason that Jesus came into the world, was to save sinners as we are. Jesus alone is able because he is the God-man, come from heaven, taking our humanity to live the life we needed to live but we could not, dying the death that we deserved, and rising victorious that he would give us eternal life. And so we see, saints of God, the Lord is strong. The Lord's hand is strong to save his people. And God is faithful to keep his promises, his covenant promise to us. And God alone does these mighty acts the chief of all, salvation through his Son, that he alone would be glorified. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father, we do thank you and praise you for this powerful picture of your great might, your judgment. But, Father, even that we, we see warning to sinners then and now, we thank you that that you do a warn before you strike We thank you, O God, for the mercy you've shown to so many. We pray that you continue to pour out your spirit. Father, even in our day, would you visit our land beginning in the household of God with the pouring out of your spirit to bring your people to repent and flee from their sins and to look to Christ and to walk in the fullness of the salvation you've given us. Lord, visit us with a season of refreshing and revival, of repentance and turning to you, that you would be exalted in your church and throughout our land, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.